Ladies and gentlemen, the tiny DevOps guy. Hello, and welcome to episode number four of Tiny DevOps. I'm your host, Jonathan Hall. And today I have with me Peter Morleon, who loves fixing and improving legacy code so the next software release can be less stressful. Peter, welcome. Hi, thanks. Can you go ahead and tell us a little bit more, elaborate on what I just said? Uh, what, what's your fascination with uh, legacy code? Maybe uh, what do you do professionally in, in your history? Sure. So, um, so I actually, if we go way back, um, I, I, I'm not the kind of uh, kid that grew up programming. I actually, I'm fairly late to the game. Uh, I did like computer games, but when it was time to choose, uh, like, go study, I chose for political sciences, and only later I did um, computer science in uh, in uh, night school. Uh, and there I discovered I like programming. And then you just when you when, you, when I was looking for a job, I just took the the first opportunity that I could as a programmer, and it was an it was working on an existing application. And so there was a lot of refactoring. There was a lot of writing new code and new features, but there was also refactoring. And there I sort of started noticing um, that it's very pleasing to, after like a year or maybe two years, you start really knowing the application, the ins and outs, the odd quirks. And so I, there I sort of started noticing, you know, I don't really mind what they call brownfield development or the legacy or refactoring legacy, sorry, legacy code. And along the way, more and more, I went. I got new jobs and went from place to place, and there was always some refactoring going on more than there was new code. And so, while many of my colleagues hated legacy code um, and just liked starting stuff from scratch, uh, I just noticed, sort of, you know, I kind of like this stuff, so maybe I should try and make a career out of it, or at least focus on that. So more or less coincidentally, I just found out that was fun. So that's how I, I got into liking legacy code. That's a, that's a nice story. And I, I agree. I think most people try to run away from legacy code. Um, I also am kind of drawn to it. I, I feel like it's, uh, it's always a fun challenge to try to, to make the code better without, without changing the functionality. You know, it's, it's an interesting yeah. constraint to work on. So um, today we're going to talk a little bit about technical debt, but I would like to for you, if you don't mind, to uh, to define that term. I mean, you talked about legacy code, but ha, ha, what what is le what is technical debt to you? Great question. It's like ev everyone, or at least all developers, seem to know what legacy code is, but asking a definition it makes it a lot harder. It's like, oh, it's spaghetti code, or it's code that doesn't work, or um, and digging into this, there's like the definition by uh, Michael Feathers. Who, who says it's code without tests. Um, but I, I believe that should be, we should see that more in, in, in light of when it, when it was written. Uh, it's from his book. Um, I forget the name of the book. Um, I think it's working effectively with legacy effectively, code. Yeah, that's the one. Um, so I think it was written in a time where unit tests and automated tests weren't as normal as they are now, even though I've encountered quite some code bases where it's still seems uh, something new. Um, but I tend to disagree with that. I, I don't know, maybe Michael Feathers himself disagrees with that now. 
because I've I have encountered code with a good test suite with quite some coverage, but where we still feel you know this is legacy code has a lot of technical depth. It's a mess. Uh, it has to improve. So a good one I've uh, I heard recently is legacy code is valuable code you're afraid to change, and that sort of covers the emotion or the emotional part uh, with legacy code. There's, there's, we have some code and it's valuable. Either it's making money or, or um, it, it's, it's just useful. We, we still need it, even if it just doesn't create income. But we're afraid to change it. Each time we need to change it, uh, we're afraid we're going to break things or we just, we just don't like it because it's, it's difficult to work in. Um, so that's a good one. And another very good one uh, is by Andrea Goulet from Corgi Bytes and uh, Legacy Code Rocks. Uh, and she says, legacy code is code without sufficient communication artifacts to explain its intent. Um, and that, so the first one is more about the emotional aspect. We're afraid to change it. The definition by Andrea is more about, it's more a technical definition because it explains, you know, it might have tests, but it might be lacking documentation, which still makes it hard to work with, or it might have thousands of pages of documentation, but uh, it's outdated. Um, so there, the, the fact that she talks about communication artifacts, that can be anything. It can be documentation, but it can also be code comments. It can be unit tests. Uh, and, and I think that's a great definition because that's usually what we feel. We come in code and we don't, we don't know what is this code supposed to do? What is it doing? And we have to start digging and digging and reading and making a mental model. So those are two great definitions to me. That's good, and and what are the uh, what are the risks of of technical debt? So we have some code that we're afraid to change. Uh, how does that affect us, especially from a business standpoint? You know, if if I'm maybe I run a business and and I don't rely on the software, what are the risks mm -hmm. involved? Yeah, because th that's the core of it. Because even if we're afraid to change it, and I mean that that has no business impact. But uh, I believe legacy code can have a real business impact in in many ways. The obvious one is, you know, each time we change something, we create bugs that we, we didn't know we were creating. We fixed uh, something here and then created a bug somewhere else, which can have an impact on the user base of the of the company. And, you know, there, there's probably some way of quantifying that. It, it can mean money lost. There's also time lost. Each time a team or a developer needs to add a feature or change a certain feature, uh, if, if it's difficult code to work with, or they're afraid to work with it, they're gonna work slower than if it would be, if it had been, you know, good, clean code, easy to, to read, it's easy to maintain. So, and time lost means money lost as well, because it's it's um, an opportunity cost. Developers could have been working on the next feature, but instead they're working days on days just to add a button that, you know, does something that seems fairly simple. So there's that. Um, there's also, Less obvious things like uh, security. You might be stuck on an older platform or, or an older uh, framework or library which has security issues now, and might be even it might even be impossible to upgrade because of other dependencies. Um, so you, you can get stuck in an old version, and you know it can have all kinds of implica implications. Another thing is it's just gets it's hard to get to know the application, so there's slower onboarding. If a new member joins the team, it can make a difference between getting up and running in two weeks or 
you know, only being product productive after six months. Um, and the final thing that is often forgotten because we tend to look at problems in a technical way, but there's also, again, the emotional aspect. Too much legacy code and technical debt leads to um, burnout in, in, in the worst case, but just it can decrease the morale of the team and, and uh, worst case, people just come and leave after a few months. And I've, I've seen this, this in action where there's a constant change in the team because people don't don't last longer than a year, uh, which which is bad for business again because you know there's the on, you have to onboard the new developers each time and people have to get to know the application. They'll they'll more easily introduce new bugs by accident because they assume certain things or they don't assume other things. Yeah, that, that's good. You brought up some ideas, uh, some concepts that I hadn't actually consider the emotional aspect especially of technical debt is something i, I i've if someone had asked me i probably could have said that but I, it wasn't top of mind for sure and so that that's that's really important is it ever appropriate to to have technical debt you know to make the choice that we're either not going to refactor this thing we're going to leave this legacy code as it is or we're going to maybe even introduce legacy code I don't, I don't know if you would intentionally introduce legacy code as, as you've defined it um but you know, it, it, we often choose as a business or even an individual to take on financial debt uh, to buy a house, a car. Is it appropriate to make that choice as you've as you've defined legacy code and technical debt, or should we always avoid it? Um, yeah, I, I think there can be situations, but you have to do it deliberately. I mean, there, there's there, so there's this um, categorization. There's intentional debt and unintentional debt. Um, things, things just happen. E even if you have like all the, you're putting all this energy and making good documentation and, and tests and clean code and well factored and all inevitably, you know, uh, a dependency gets a security issue. Maybe you didn't know about it until a year or two later, or, um, things that were clear to the team at a certain moment might not be later. And so they sort of didn't think to document something or, new patterns emerge like the the singleton pattern was when i got started as a developer was one of the design patterns you had to know fast forward a few years and and it's a bad it's considered a bad practice except for maybe some edge cases so you might end up with code at four or five or ten years later even though at the time we felt good with the code our feelings have changed now and and we we don't think it's readable or maintainable or good code. So that's unintentional code and that will happen inevitably. It can be also, um, sometimes it is a good idea to create intentional technical debt because there's a deadline in the, in the project. So, so things have to go fast or um, maybe you haven't found a better way. So you're writing code and it works and it's under tests, but you've tried refactoring it, but then it doesn't work anymore. And you, you you're sort of stuck then it's, sometimes it's a good idea to just, you know, we'll, we'll leave it as it is and revisit it later. Um, the problem there is that often revisiting later never happens. But, right. <laughs> uh, you know, in the in the end, we're, we're still working for a business or maybe we're running a business. So there's more than just the pressure to write good code. And there's also pressure to get something out. There's uh, pressure not to waste too much money on things. There's all these different factors. So sometimes it, it can be a good idea to take the quick route and create some intentional technical debt. 
Do you, do you have any examples of a time, a specific time when technical debt uh, was a serious problem? Well, I, I have a, a great example. It wasn't great to work with, but um, so there's this company, uh, which I won't name, and they have a big application for you know making reservations for booking booking trips. So it's in the tourist sector, and it's it's a gigantic um, application. I believe it was a monolith, but it existed from like seven or eight pieces. It had about eight databases, and it had. I guess between five and eight teams as well, all working on that. And you know, management acknowledged, okay, we're, it is a mess. We're we're stuck, and we need to fix it. So they got in some contractors, some freelancers, uh, to create a refactoring team, which I was part of. And well, basically, didn't didn't work out because. You can't have um, one team will do, saying we'll do the cleanup and the others just chugging along. And the issue there was uh, again each time a business or the, the the business team would ask a feature, the relevant uh, team, you know, one of those five teams would would get to work, and it would take a long time. Uh, it would usually be riddled with bugs. Just and this this wasn't a fault of the team. I mean, there were some capable people there, seniors, some juniors. But you have to imagine there was a lot of business logic in uh, SQL scripts. And so they had stored procedures referring, referencing other stored procedures, referencing again other stored procedures. And many of these stored procedures were thousands of lines long. So to find your way into that, even for a small change, is just frightening at best and when you make a change you're, you you don't really know especially as a newcomer because we the refactoring team were new you don't really know what, what you're doing because because you might be editing in the, in the wrong place or you might be doing it in the right place but there might be two or three other places where you need to make the change and so this had been going on for years probably and you know people a lot of Developers just left, especially the better developers who knew, who saw this and saw there wasn't um, there wasn't going to be any real change. So they just left for for something better. Mm. So what you're left with is is people either choosing you know for the, the the cushion job, or you get stuck with developers who don't have this enough skills to to really change the project or turn it around, which is the Dead Sea effect. Yeah, and I think after six months. Just about everyone in the refactoring team just left. <laughs> All right. So uh, technical debt can be scary. How do we know if technical debt is affecting us? Uh, maybe you've just joined a new team, especially, and you, and you don't know the details of the, the, the company and the code base yet. How can you tell? What are the signs to look for? Well, there's of course, there are tools that can measure this. Um, I know like in the .NET space, there's Endepend. Which which actually actually just gives a score of technical debt and, and even can calculate more or less like how many hours or days of work you have ahead of yourself to to fix it all. Uh, but there there are also other metrics like I mean code coverage, code churn. There's all kind of things 
that you can measure to see how bad is it is it in my application but there's also just talking with the team again that emotional aspect seeing if people like working on the code or if they if they hate it um, um, maybe count how many bugs there are after each release or, or you don't even have to count it if, if there's like a lot or people feel it's a mm -hmm. lot um, maybe there are only five after every release but there are five big ones each time and, and people feel this is way too much just the feeling of we're, we're facing an issue here that needs to be fixed that that could be a, a way of measuring measuring that um, I have this um, metric of myself uh, which I call the disaster release ratio and it's you you count how many disasters or bugs you have after every release and divide that by the amount of releases you have and you want to get as a small a number as possible mm -hmm. so if you have um, if you've done five releases but you had 25 bugs over that period the ratio is five um, if you have one bug and you released five times it's one fifth so it's it's a lower number so just just getting a feel of 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 that is a, is a way of measuring so let, let's say that we've identified that our team is affected by legacy code what can we do about it how do we start tackling this problem yeah writing tests is like to me the number one technique to tackle your legacy code at least it's a starting point so when we encounter legacy code and technical debt we probably want to change the code and improve it but before we do that I believe we need we need a way of knowing that, that when we make changes we aren't breaking stuff because often in legacy code things are constantly breaking and that's one thing we want to stop so adding automated tests is the like just about the starting point for me uh, and sometimes to add automated tests you might need some little refactoring or tweaking before you can even add the tests but i'd keep that at a, at a minimum um, which is why sometimes uh, I wouldn't, so there's a big debate, you know, the, the test pyramid, where at the bottom of the pyramid, there's unit tests. So you need a lot of unit tests because that's the base. And the more components you start testing together, the less of those kind of tests you need. So often, usually that's, you need a lot of unit tests, a little less integration tests, and even less end-to-end -end tests. With the legacy code, that's often, or sometimes at least, it's that's not as as easy because adding unit tests requires a certain design, maybe so you can uh, inject dependencies or mock certain stuff. And that's not always as easy. So I've had projects where I've done it more or less the other way around, where I started writing a lot of end-to-end -end tests, even though you get then the, I think that's called the testing ice cream cone or something, where it's <laughs> the inverted pyramid. Yeah. But you know, you, you make do with what you have. So, um, having a lot of automated tests regardless of the type just gives you a safety net to start refactoring and actually have a, a success story there um in another at another client we we had a similar uh, i mean it wasn't as bad but we had a similar issue where this application each time things changed and were released uh something would break and the first thing we did we started writing a lot of postman tests and basically we wrote as much as we could for that and then when we felt we had enough things covered, then we started changing the code and we could run our Postman collection and see, oh, I've broken something. Let me debug that or revisit that. 
and it really helped. So that, that is the starting point, writing automated tests. So you can change code, run the entire test suite, maybe in, your, in, a, in a CI build, and verify that you've reduced the risk of breaking anything. Another technique, which I haven't used yet, but I find a very interesting ID is the wall of technical debt, which is uh, an ID by Matthias Ferraz. His idea is to, when you encounter something that you feel this is a, um, this is an issue, this is a problem, you know, you, you, you write it down on a post-it and you put it on the wall and everyone does the same. And if you encounter something that's already on the wall, you can like add a, a dot or so dot notation, just add a dot and, and dots will be added on the post-its as you go along. And that starts making visible which pieces you need to tackle first. Um, so you, you can add, I, I believe he then adds estimations on how much work it would take to improve this code. And then it even makes it visible to like business people, which pieces or which features or which pieces of the code um, are a problem and how long would it take? And then you can start evaluating, you know, this is low hanging fruit. It won't take a long, but it seems we're very frustrated by it. And that's a good idea then to start picking which pieces you should be working in, in, in first and probably also which pieces should we be writing tests for first. And then, um, you know, start refactoring, get agreement on the team on how you want to refactor. Maybe variables need to re be renamed in a certain way. Maybe there's coding styles, maybe there's architectural styles. Uh, maybe you want to introduce the repository pattern, uh, but these are things you need to agree on in the team. And once you have that, you can start working towards that. Uh, so what, what can we do if maybe um, management hasn't bought into this idea? Uh, you know, I mean, and I, I think to some extent, pr practically everybody's on in that situation. I mean, maybe even management agrees we had technical debt, but they never want to give it the full attention that developers want, right? So, mm -hmm. what could we do if if we are feeling the pressure of technical debt in a way that our project manager or, or upper management is not? What can we do? Yeah, the wall of technical debt, which I mentioned, is is a good idea to make it at least visible. You could even, I think, uh, Matthias Ferrells. Uh, mentions that if, if each dot on the post-it represents like half an hour, you might even make it quantifiable where the business or the manager can see, uh, okay, the team estimates this takes um, um, like, a, for example, five hours to refactor and they've spent 50 hours on it. Like we're just losing time, maybe just refactor and get it over with. Mm -hmm. That could make it uh, visible and make maybe help you convince them that it's it's in their interest also to refactor, because just complaining uh, about clean code and technical stuff uh, often doesn't resonate with uh, with business people. Um, I I think what you need is a, is a find a common ground to explain what the issue is and why it needs to why we need to refactor. There's the like there's the idea of technical depth explaining we're taking on debt, like financial debt, and we need to repay um, or things will, will, will just get worse in the long run. Um, although there seems to have been some other ways of looking at that recently because business people are usually um, used to taking on debt and it's something they can plan for and it's, it's fairly normal. Um, so there's like other metaphors also in the financial space where 
Now, I'm not a financial expert, but someone compared it to um, like an, a, an investment that isn't hedged. Um, oh. So if I understand correctly, you can invest in, say, stock or shares, but and, and thinking, you know, things will increase, but then you never know what the market is going to do. Things, you know, the, the, the shares you bought might decrease in value. And then there's some kind of way of uh, insuring yourself against it, which they call hedging your investment. And you, you, of course, you pay for that as well. So if the shares increase in value, you'll win money, but you'll win less or you'll have less profits than if you wouldn't have hedged the, the investment because you have to pay for hedging that investment. Uh, but if they lose in value, you won't have lost as much. So it's it's a sort of, sort of insurance and you pay for insurance as well. So you could compare technical debt to that as well. Um, and that resonates, at least that's the theory of the author of that, of that article. That's the resonates better with business people because that now we're talking about risk, no longer about debt, which is something they can plan for, they can manage, um, which is foreseeable. You know, we, we, we pay this amount every month. Um, while risk is something that business people don't like, they want predictability right. and a debt is something predictable, but a, a risk isn't. So that, that might resonate better. And in general, I think we should find, I, I need to think more about this, but I think we need to find ways of communicating on a common ground. So maybe even if you're talking with some, some manager who loves doing marathons, you could compare technical debt with starting fast at the at the at the start of the of the marathon and running very fast and then of course you still need to do 30 40 kilometers you'll you'll have a hard time and you might even have to have to give up while if you just find a pace and you know you can continue that pace for 42 kilometers then that's that's probably a better idea we need to get out of our technical comfort zone and find connection with uh, business people so that they understand why we're complaining about clean code. If all else fails, I would sometimes recommend just refactor anyway. Okay. Take ownership of the code as, as a developer or, or as a team. Business is asking you to implement a feature and they don't and they shouldn't really care how you implement it. So if, if I need some plumbing done in, in my house, I don't care how the plumber does it. It it just just needs to be fixed. I mean, if, if there's a leakage, just fix it. And I don't I mean do it according to the the rules of the game or what, what's what the best practices of plumbing. So I think business can expect the same from us that we implement a feature according to the best practices of our of our trade of our profession. So if they're pressuring pressuring us for delivering by the end of the week, we should be prepared of pushing back or um, just when you have, when you find time in between refactor anyway. And um, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I, I, I have done this where, where a, a technical lead um, told me not to spend time writing unit tests. And I just did it anyway. And I, that's just the way I feel comfortable, comfortable writing code. So sometimes we should just take ownership of the code and say, you know, we're going to do it right and good. 
uh, we're going to refactor this piece. And you don't need to ask business. We need four weeks to refactor this. You need to do, you know, continuous continuous refactoring. They call it. Mm-hmm. You need to do it continuously, bit by bit, baby steps. Uh, you don't need to ask, and and it's irreal. It's unrealistic to ask business for like a week or four weeks to. We won't be delivering any business value. We'll just be refactoring stuff. So, which in the end does create business value because it makes your work easier and more efficient. But it's it's unrealistic to ask it from them. Good advice. Good advice. Uh, where can listeners go for more information if they're uh, if they're struggling with technical debt and they want to learn more about what we talked about? Yeah. So there's the uh, working effectively with legacy code by Michael Feathers, which um, Give some great, also uh, technical techniques like you know you extract classes and interfaces and very, very specific ways of improving your code. A lot of the blog posts by Martin Fowler also, you know, cover topics on on improving and changing code. And if you like working in legacy code, then I can recommend uh, Legacy Code Rocks or the Legacy Code Rocks community. It's a Slack. They have a podcast. They have online meetings. Um, you can find them at uh, legacycode.rocks. Uh, I believe they also organize MenderCon, which is like a online at this moment conference on legacy code. And and you know they have this idea there are makers and there are menders in in programming. So and there's a place for both. There are programmers who like making stuff from scratch. And there are others who like taking something that has been built and improving on that. And even if it's in a bad state, you know, get it in a good state again. So those are the menders. And uh, it's actually um, Andrea Goulet, which I mentioned in the definition, who is one of the founders of Legacy Code Rocks. And finally, how can uh, how can people follow up with you if uh, they're interested? Well, you can just Google Peter Morleon because it's a fairly uncommon name and you'll probably find me. Um, so I'm at Twitter. I'm on Twitter at, at Peter Morleon. I also have two blogs, which might seem strange, but I have petermorleon.com uh, where I just write about anything, um, technical usually, but anything I, I want. And I have uh, redstar.be, which is my, um, my company, where I specifically blog about... Um, legacy code and technical debt. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Peter, for coming on today. It's been an interesting and educational conversation. I hope the listeners have gotten something out of this. Uh, Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This episode is copyright 2021 by Jonathan Hall, all rights reserved. Find me online at jhall.io. Theme music is performed by Riley Day.